A few weeks ago, we talked about women's health and touched on osteoporosis and bone density. It's such a major issue, I felt like we needed to go deeper into the subject. For a bit of background, osteoporosis is a disease that slowly and quietly weakens bones and often goes undiagnosed. It's caused by low bone mass and the weakening of bone, which can lead to an increased risk of fracture. While osteoporosis can affect people at almost any age, it's most common in Canadians over the age of 50 years old. A few stats on the subject are that over 2 million Canadians are affected by osteoporosis. At least 1 in 3 women and 1 in 5 men will break a bone due to osteoporosis in their lifetime. And fragility fractures represent 80% of all fractures in menopausal women over the age of 50. Fractures from osteoporosis are more common than heart attack, stroke, and breast cancer combined. So to explain more, I talked with Dr. Christopher Kovacs. He's an expert on the topic. He obtained his MD and trained in internal medicine at Queen's University and did his clinical fellowship in endocrinology and metabolism at the University of Alberta. He did a postdoctoral research fellowship in bone and mineral metabolism at Harvard Medical School and Massachusetts General Hospital. His clinical practice focuses on osteoporosis and disorders of bone metabolism. He's received dozens of national and international awards for his research. He was actually my supervisor for my PhD, so I called him up at his clinic to find out everything we need to know about osteoporosis. Hi, Dr. Kovacs. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Mike. Happy to be here. You're obviously the right person to talk to about this topic, but I think people need to know, what is osteoporosis? Well, osteoporosis is a condition in which you suffer fractures for little or no reason. Um, traumatic fractures are Fractures due to trauma are what happens to anybody. If there's sufficient force, you're in a car accident, um, you know, somebody hits you with a two-by-four or a hammer and you break a bone, that's mm -hmm. going to happen regardless of your bone strength because there's enough force to break anybody's bone. But when you're doing normal activities of daily living, you're just lifting things out of the cupboard, bags of groceries, you're pushing the mattress as you make the bed, a child leaps up into your arms, you bend and there's break in your back. All of those things are osteoporotic fractures because it implies the the bone is weak. Um, it, it doesn't have the strength to, to um, uh, be able to withstand the normal forces that you'd encounter in activities of daily living. Um, mm -hmm. And so when we, we say that somebody has osteoporosis, we're usually saying that they're at risk for these fractures and that we want to prevent those fractures. Um, or the person's already had such fractures, and, and so they've declared themselves that way, and we're saying, okay, you're at very high risk to have more fractures, and we want to do something to prevent those fractures, more of those fractures from happening in the future. Right. Uh, so that's obviously a, a big risk factor for folks. If they haven't been diagnosed because of fractures, how do people assess the risk? Um, there's several ways. The standard thing is the bone density test. Um, and that can be done at any age, but it's generally recommended to be used first in older people um, around age 60, 65 if they haven't had prior fractures or if they have certain identifiable risks and to do it earlier, um, such as around the time of menopause, so age 50 or, or so on. But it, and it used to be that that was the only thing. We'd, we'd measure bone density, and if it was below a certain level, we said that person has osteoporosis, and we treat them, and if it wasn't, then we didn't treat them. Um, but it's 
been recognized over the last 10 years that there's a lot of other factors contributing to the risk of osteoporosis and just doing bone density isn't enough. And so we have some tools. Uh, one of the common ones is uh, the most common one used worldwide is called FRAX, F-A-R-A-X. It's a, a computer model um, based on hundreds of thousands of patients studied for 10 years or more um, that has identified different risks and and put them in the model to then be able to calculate what a person, what an individual person's risk of having a fracture is. And so age, because increasing age increases the risk of osteoporosis, and then sex, because uh, women are more at risk than men, and then height and weight, because small body habitus increases the risk. Uh, whether there's been a prior fracture, if a parent has fractured a hip, mm. um, smoking, glucocorticoids, or what are commonly referred to as steroids uh, to treat certain conditions like asthma and Crohn's and so on, rheumatoid arthritis, um, drinking alcohol, three or more drinks a day, and then the actual bone density value. These are the things that get plugged into this model. But there are others, such as diabetes, both type 1 and type 2, increase the risk of osteoporosis. And conditions that lead to people falling more often than normal, um, they, they're not in incorporated into these models, but they increase the risk of fracture because many fractures are related to falls. And so if you can prevent the fall, then you also are preventing fractures. Um, so these things are uh, so are put into the model and we can estimate what's this person's risk of having a fracture over the next 10 years. And if they're estimated to be low, we can say, you're doing fine. You, you could do some routine things to help preserve bone health like physical activity and making sure your calcium and vitamin D intake are good. And if we estimate them to be at high risk, then we want them to be treated with a medication to uh, build up bone strength or preserve bone strength. And if they're in between at moderate risk, then it's um, a situation where on an, individ on an individual basis, we might say, okay, we're going to treat you with a medication or no, we're going to keep an eye on you and see what optimizing mm -hmm. your nutrition and physical activity and so on do for you. Right, see how that makes an impact. There's a lot of factors, obviously, that kick in. And when you talk about some of the things like risk of falling, that could be things like as simple as vertigo, but it could also be strength and, and, and mobility and flexibility, right? Right, and, and conditions like multiple sclerosis. When a patient, for example, with MS is at the stage where they're sometimes using a cane, and but they're not at the point where they need a wheelchair, they're at higher risk for fracture because mm. they're unstable yeah. and they're progressing that way. Right. That makes sense. Okay, so for bone density, how would you best explain that to somebody who isn't really familiar with what that is? Ah, it's that's a simple question, but and the answer could get very complicated because <laughs> the bone density test doesn't actually measure bone density. It, it's a, a misnomer. Um, that when the technique was first created, somebody called it bone density, and then and then you end up with so many um, misinterpretations because of that. Because people just know the name and they think, well, density is a three-dimensional measurement. Bone density would imply, um, if you think of a cube as a three-dimensional object, how much bone is in that cube. Um, mm -hmm. And the more dense the bone is, the higher the density, that should be stronger bone. If there's less bone, there'd be less bone in that, that standard cube, and that, that bone would be um, more easily broken or crushed. Um, but the bone density test, it, it's, it's actually a two-dimensional reading. So 
is like a photograph as compared to a cube. And what it's measuring is how much calcium is in is blocked by the the x-ray beam that's used in the technique. So in a sense, it's a calcium x-ray. And calcium is one of the components that contributes to bone strength, um, but it's not the only one. If I can give an analogy, the structure of bone, you could think of it as there's the steel framework. Those would be proteins, collagens, um, the steel framework of a building, and then the calcium could be like the bricks on the building. And Uh both the steel framework and the bricks are contributing to the strength of that building being able to resist strong winds or something falling on it. You need both. The, The bone density test, in a sense, is estimating how many bricks are there, um, mm-hmm. but it's not telling you is that a, a thick building, a thin building, and so on, because it's, it's not a true three-dimensional measurement. But despite its limitations, it does work well to predict fracture. It correlates well with uh, bone strength, but it's not a perfect measurement. And as an example, in the database that's used for the bone is the average height of women in it so, so the normal value that people are compared to, the average height of women in it is about five foot four and a half. And the shorter a woman is, the more petite she is, her bone density by this reading is going to look lower than it really is. And conversely, the taller um, and heavier since childhood a woman is, by this technique, her bone density is going to look better than it really is. And it just reflects the fact that the petite woman has thinner, narrow bones, the taller, heavier woman might have thicker bones, but their actual bone density, and think of that cube I was mentioning, is the same. They've got the same amount of bone per volume. Um, they just, one just has thicker bones than the other. Um, right. Uh, so those would be probably a useful test for somebody to get measured and compare it to themselves over time, as opposed to sometimes comparing to the, to the norm. We're talking osteoporosis with endocrinologist and researcher Dr. Chris Kovacs on your VOCM. One of the things you mentioned before as a risk factor was um, women's bone density changing as they age. Why does bone density change as we get older or women get older? Well, I should say first, it's not just a disorder of women. Um, Men get osteoporosis too, but women more commonly. And the reason relates to the effect of menopause. Uh, What we call estrogen, um, and it's more properly estradiol, but the estrogen is the, the, we think of it as the main female hormone. That has an important role in regulating the skeleton. Um, in both men and women. So your skeleton is constantly repairing itself. It's, throughout the day, you get thousands of sites throughout your skeleton where you're getting little cracks happen as you walk, jump, um, pick something up, and it's a bit heavy. And there are bone cells that go and identify those areas. They uh, digest the areas that are cracked. They put in new bone. So your bone is constantly repairing itself, maintaining its strength. And this This allows the skeleton to potentially be strong throughout life. But a a key signal in this is the estrogen, which sort of sets the tone or the speed of this process. And when you take estrogen away, the part of the system that breaks down bone becomes accelerated. And so the bone starts being broken down all over the place. It's sort of like that initial step of the repair mechanism has gone haywire. 
and the ability of the other cells to build up bone, uh, they can't keep up to the pace of the bone being broken down. Um, and so at menopause, the ovaries stop releasing eggs and estrogen levels, estrogen production by the ovaries falls dramatically. And so women end up with low estrogen. And this whole process starts where over the next 10 to 15 years, they can lose 1% to 2% of their bone mass per year. Wow. Um, and then uh, overall with men and women, as we get older, um, we're less active, physically active than we used to be. And you think when you were a teenager or 20 and maybe you're running around playing soccer, you're doing physical things, and then when you're in your 30s, 40s, and 50s, you're much more sedentary. Your skeleton, part of that repair mechanism I mentioned, it's also responding to what are the, the daily things you're doing with your skeleton, and if you don't use it, you lose it. And then think of somebody who's in their 70s or 80s. They're more frail. They're, they're really not moving much. And, again, the skeleton tears itself down in proportion to the, the lack of use. And so as, as muscle mass declines when you age, your bone mass declines, too. They're, they're, they're in tandem. So these are two of the key things. There's the age-related decline that happens to men and women, and then the estrogen-related decline. Uh, women get that jump start at menopause, so they lose rapidly, and then it tapers off, and they get the age-related decline. And men, as we get older, um, we tend to produce less testosterone, which gets converted to estrogen, and the, es the lower estrogen has the same effect in men, but at a, at a slower pace. So men get this estrogen-related decline um, in addition to the age-related decline. Would it, it be that men tend to be larger stature too? Would that help protect their bones as opposed to women who are smaller? Yes, and, and, and going back to what I mentioned about the problems with the bone density test, men and women have the same bone density, but by that test, men will look like they have a much better bone density because their bones are thicker. And so they're starting at a higher bone mass, uh, thicker bones of the same density as women. And so if you think of it as a thick tree branch versus a thin tree branch, the men's bones being the thicker tree branch, it's hard to bend or break that. Um, and then you start chipping away at it with the age-related decline and the estrogen, the low estrogen-related decline, well, if you've got a thin branch and you're eating away at it, much more, much earlier is that going to be breakable as compared to the thick branch. So that, that really explains the difference between men and women and the response to, to, to the development of osteoporosis. Men do get it. Um, they suffer about a third of the hip fractures and other fractures that women do, um, but they, they do get it. And what also happens as we get older is that, so there's this kind of, you could call it a sex bias, that women are more prone to develop osteoporosis because of the menopause effect, but also men are more prone to dying of cardiovascular disease. So as we get older, the men are dying off sooner than they, they sooner than women, so they're, they're not experiencing as much the effects of, of bone loss compared to the women. That makes perfect sense. And a couple of things you were talking about earlier were, and you just alluded to it, talking about like ad adapting to physical activity and creating a stimulus for bone to, to reform. What are some things people can do to reduce the risk? Well, 
the best thing, out of all I say, the best thing is to preserve what you have because it's, it's much easier to tell your skeleton to maintain what it's got than it is to try to get your skeleton to put more back on. Because over our childhood and teenage years, that's when the skeleton is reaching what we call its peak bone mass, what's been programmed sort of by genetics and physical activity and weight and so on. And after your early to mid-20s, it's like the skeleton's forgotten how to build strength, build bone mass. It knows how to lose, and it can regain some of what's lost, but really it can't do a substantial regain. There's one exception to that, and it's part of the research that I do, That, that um, and this, this will get us off on a tangent, so I'll try to avoid that, but just to mention <laughs> that when women, when women breastfeed, they can lose 5 to 10% of their bone mass because they're, they're breaking down the bone to get the calcium and phosphorus to put into breast milk. So they'll lose 5 to 10% of their bone mass in six months, and then in the following six to 12 months, they completely restore it so their skeleton is as strong or stronger than it was before they started. So that's one exception because any other time as an adult, you lose bone mass for any reason because the, the steroids I mentioned, other harmful medications or the age, the menopause-related decline, and then you fix what's wrong and you get a partial slow recovery because the skeleton doesn't know how to do this rebuilding anymore. But if you breastfeed for six months and lose a lot, you put it all back. So there's, there's something there that we don't understand. There's some other regulatory factor that kicks in after breastfeeding. But so for the, the non-breastfeeding woman who can look forward to her skeleton being restored, if you're talking about the, all other adults, um, what can you do? If you maintain what you've got, that's the best thing. And maintaining means... Um, Physical activity, as I mentioned, because you, you don't use it, you'll lose it. So you want to maintain a, a good level of weight-bearing physical activity, and you want good nutrition. Calcium is important, vitamin D to be able to absorb the calcium, and you want good health overall, avoiding medications that are bad for bone and, uh, and conditions that are bad for bone, like diabetes. I mean, it, we can't avoid all of these things because some they're going to happen for other reasons. But um, these are the factors in play that to try to optimize one's bone health. Um, and if someone does that, they, they prevent bone loss in the first place. As I say, they're better off in the long run. But if somebody's experienced bone loss, then then we try to optimize the situation. Again, trying to optimize their intake of calcium and vitamin D, recommending physical activity, um, trying to get rid of offending medications and other factors, and, and then treating with medications that may stop the loss of bone or may stimulate bone regain uh, to a certain extent. And so there's a number of decisions to make in the individual situation right. for a person. Is it, is it just optimizing bone health, or are we actually going to intervene with a medication? And, and that's where, as I mentioned earlier, that the idea of the fracture risk comes into play. So let's review what we've learned so far and what we can do for our health with respect to osteoporosis. As we age, the two groups of cells that form the maintenance crew for our bones become less efficient at working together. When we start to lose bone mass, the osteoclast cells which remove old bone do it faster than the osteoblast cells are able to rebuild it. 
In addition, calcium, like many other nutrients in the body, is absorbed less effectively as we age. Bones are kind of like a bank account. If we withdraw more than we deposit, our account balance starts to dwindle. So the question becomes, how do I get enough calcium? The first thing any medical expert would tell you is to get the right advice on nutrition from a registered dietitian. That's someone who's trained specifically to deal with conditions like osteoporosis. That said, there's some universal advice that's helpful. One thing that you should do is eat foods that are high in calcium and integrate them into your diet on a day-to-day -day basis. The first thing you can do is reach for some dairy products if you aren't lactose intolerant. Have a glass of milk, have some soup made with milk, eat some low-fat cheese, or have yogurt with fruit for dessert, after a meal, or for breakfast. Some good news is that about a three centimeter cube of cheese has about as much calcium as a cup of milk. For those of you who are more conscious of saturated fat intake, skim milk products provide as much calcium as whole milk with the added advantage of less fat and cholesterol. Dairy products are also an excellent source of calcium and are a good source of protein. If you're intolerant to dairy products or if you prefer to avoid dairy, there's other alternative foods that are high in calcium. These include calcium-fortified soy, almond and rice beverages, calcium-fortified orange juice, canned salmon and canned sardines, lots of green leafy vegetables like broccoli, cabbage and collard greens, nuts, beans, lentils, rhubarb and edamame. Calcium isn't the only nutrient that helps our bones. Vitamin D works hand in hand with it. It helps our intestines absorb calcium from the food we eat. Unlike calcium, which you can get through food, our body makes vitamin D when sunlight hits your skin. Active people who live in sunny regions can get at least some of what they need from spending time in the outdoors every day. But in less temperate areas, like Newfoundland and Labrador, our skin makes less vitamin D in the winter months, especially for older adults. The amount your skin makes depends on where you live, how light or dark your skin is, and the time of day you're outside. It could be about 15 minutes for a very fair-skinned person, or even longer for somebody with darker skin. But you have to be careful. Too much time in the sun raises your chance of having skin cancer. Even though sunlight's a key part of your body's vitamin D production, it's best to protect your skin with clothing and sunscreen. You can get vitamin D in multivitamins and in combination with calcium supplements, as well as on its own. Keep in mind, though, that many diet supplements have vitamin D, so before you take any supplement, check with your doctor first. When we come back, we're going to meet with Shane Monahan, founder of Age Right Fitness, who's going to talk about exercise for older adults before we finish up our talk with Dr. Kovacs and our conversation on bone health. We'll be right back after this short break. Hey Shane, so uh, this is the spot. This is it, Age Right Health and Fitness. Welcome. This is a bit of a different uh, approach than most gyms. You're catering towards a specific audience, the aging population. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I looked at the numbers. The numbers don't lie. By the year 2036, 30% of Newfoundland's population will be over the age of 65. Wow. So that's a pretty staggering number yeah. when you look at it. So clearly there's a demand for, for that age group. In, the, in terms of their health and fitness needs. Mm -hmm. Whether they know it or not, they're gonna, they're gonna need to get into some type of consistent strength training program or physical activity program that will help to them to prolong their health and prevent injuries and falls and sickness. So, so what's your background? Uh, my background, I've been a trainer for 15 years, health, health and fitness trainer here in St. John's for about 15 years, um, working with many different uh, populations. But I realized pretty quickly that I, I 
like gravitated more towards the aging population when I realized most of my clients were over the age of 65 and it's just who I prefer, prefer to work with based on their expectations and just honestly from what you can learn by, by chatting with them and picking up different <laughs> things from them. You know? Right, it's a mutual beneficial thing. You, yeah. you teach them about exercise, they teach you about everything else. About life. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Yeah. What are some things that you know you would promote when it comes to exercise for someone of that demographic? Yeah, so uh, in, in my practice what I see a lot here is uh, women lacking more upper body strength than men, and which is the product of less muscle mass as they age. Mm -hmm. So I like to focus on, on working on that kind of thing to help increase upper body strength, but also uh, overall strength. You know, one thing is definitely not more important than another. So. I look at right from the feet up, right from the ankles up, I mean, we want to make sure there's mobility and strength. We want to strengthen the hips. Glutes are a big thing. See a lot of weak glutes in most people, men and women. So definitely need to address that. And I find when that's addressed, a lot of other things are taken care of with that mm -hmm. along the chain. Well, I mean, slips and falls are one of the most devastating injuries that can occur for somebody. And, and women are more susceptible to hip fractures. That's right. Yeah, big time. So we want, you know, we want to keep the hips strong and balance is a big thing. You know, we don't want to lose strength and balance because that's just a recipe for disaster, as we all know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, I mean, Eastern Health has, has seen many, many hip fractures, which can be avoided in a lot of cases. Yeah. Well, how about you show me a couple of key exercises you would do with people and then we can explain what they are and then um, give them some ideas of what they could maybe do at home if they want to try it there. Yeah, sure. That sounds great. Yeah, so the first one we're going to do is uh, a glute bridge. So, like the, the name, it actually works on the, the glute muscles, which, like we, uh, we talked about before, they're very important in uh, keeping the core strong, keeping your back healthy, preventing the slip and falls, that type of thing. So, mm. we're going to work those butt muscles. So, what I'll get you to do is lie on your back. Okay. Um, you're more than welcome at home to do it from your bed or from your couch if you have trouble transferring from the floor. Right, okay. So we'll get you to lie on your back and we're just gonna bring your feet into where you can just get them flat on the floor. So feet are flat on the floor, that's right. Okay, and yeah. What we're gonna do here is just think about squeezing the glutes. So we wanna imagine that we have sponges in those glute muscles and we're trying to squeeze that butt and squeeze the water out of those sponges as we lift our hips towards the ceiling. Right. Because if you just think about lifting your hips towards the ceiling, the exercise really has no purpose type of thing and it might be hard to get that contraction mm -hmm. in those glute muscles that are typically weak because a lot of people are sad on them or they're just not activated during the day. Yeah, you could probably use your back or you could use your ankles if you wanted to try and get your butt up but it might not be the... 100%. Yeah, I see a lot of people, they feel this one in their quads when right. they first do it. They don't feel it at the butt at all and a couple of things we can tweak there to, uh, to modify it and uh, it's pretty amazing how quickly they can target the, uh, the so muscles. So what does this there. tell us if we have trouble doing this? If you have trouble doing it, it tells you that your glutes need work, really. Right. That you need to get those muscles fired up you right. know, and turned on and, and working properly because that's the center of your body. Everybody thinks the core is limited to just the abdominal muscles and yeah. that type of thing. But I mean, in my opinion, the glutes are the powerhouse of the body. Right. Okay. Cool. I can feel that. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> now what are we going to do? bar push-up we've got a barbell here set up on a, a rack but mm -hmm. you're not limited to needing that at home you can you could do this from a uh, edge of a countertop or a you know a table that doesn't move have it against the wall obviously yeah, whatever corner of your bed even 
corner of the bed is a good one. Yeah, that's right. And you know, I, if you're not familiar with it and you haven't exercised in a while, I'd, I'd start higher. Right. And if it's too easy, then great, go a bit lower, find a, find a lower surface, but definitely start higher. Right. Yeah, so we just get you set up here. Uh, we're gonna go with about a shoulder width grip on okay. the bar. Yeah. And then from there, you're just gonna lower your chest, about mid chest down to the bar, keeping your, your, your knees and your ankles and hips and shoulders all in a straight line with your ears. Okay. So it's a few things to remember, but we want your body to look like a plank. Got you, got you. Okay, okay. so I go here and then I lower myself down lower to the down. bar. That's right, perfect. And then we push back up again. So you're gonna feel this in the chest, shoulders, triceps. Right. You also want to look at your, your shoulder blades and make sure they're not winging out of place, which uh, indicates other issues that might be happening. But that's all stuff that your trainer or your whoever's doing your assessment would pick up on here. Right. So if I was really struggling with this, that would that would say my upper body's weak. It would say that you could use some work there for sure. Yeah. In, in most cases, yeah, which is quite quite common, especially in the, in women that we see come in. Right. And like you said, it's a functional muscle mass. I think women are, are relatively the same strength as men for lower body. It's just oh, how much muscle mass we have as people. And one of the problems when we get older is we lose muscle mass. That's right. You've got your, yeah, exactly, called sarcopenia in the medical world. Mm -hmm. And uh, we, you know, we just need to fight to uh, stay, uh, stay above the curve, so to speak, right. when it comes to that kind of thing. Because everybody's losing it eventually. Right. Right. Yeah, you might not have the biggest arms of your life, but you don't want to have the smallest. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly. Okay. Yeah, good point. You can use that one. Yeah, that's good. I like that. <laughs> so what we're going to do now is a sit-to-stand exercise, uh, which is what we do as part of our performance battery in our uh, assessments that we do. Mm -hmm. And this one is a pretty good indicator of uh, somebody's ability to get up and down out of a chair or to be able to you know, sit down to a toilet, that type of thing. So uh, in, functional, in terms of functional fitness, this one is very important. Mm. And uh, to improve somebody's uh, activities of daily living, the ADLs, this one is a, a major one, as you know. Right. So we'll get you to just uh, stand in front of the chair. All you're going to do, Mike, is just drop your hips back into the chair and yep. sit down. Right. And you're just gonna stand up. Right. Simple as that, sit to stand. And how many of these would somebody try and do, or is it the more the merrier type thing? Well, I mean, the more the merrier, obviously, you know, especially if it's, if it's part of an exercise, uh, in an exercise plan with yeah. a set number of reps and, uh, and sets. But uh, in a test to kind of just see where somebody stands, mm -hmm. we, uh, there's a certain number we get them to do. I got you. Yeah, in a certain period of time. And then your scoring is based on that. So this is relatively safe for people to do at home because they can do it into a chair, they can do it into something stable, so they can see how easy it is for them to get up and down. But they can, if they get too low and they can't have the strength to get up, they can just stay sat. Just stay sat down, yeah. Right. I mean, and you can also modify it in other ways too. If you're having trouble getting up from the chair without using your arms, or, yeah. you know, use your arms. Put right. Them up, you know, set the chair up where it's within reach of something you can hold on to. Mm -hmm. and do it from there. Well, this is probably one of the benefits of coming and talking to somebody like yourself that understands that there are different ways that people need to perform exercises as they age in order to be safe um, and also to accomplish really what they need to as opposed to things that are somewhat maybe irrelevant for people that are looking for quality of life. Yeah, for sure. You, you nailed it. Um, yeah, I mean, the, a lot of the people that we see, they're, they have realistic expectations of what they're hoping to get out of this. and. That's kind of refreshing to me in a, in a fitness industry that's kind of inundated with 
a lot of high flying, high intensity that uh, type of activities that you know you're not going to get away with as you get get into a later age. I mean, in, in most cases, I mean some right. people are the exception, right? But for the most part, it needs to be sensible training that's functional. Yeah. Right. So if you're going to give anybody listening and, uh, and, and saying, look, I could improve my health, what would be the, the, the best advice you could give people about starting an exercise program that would be beneficial? Yeah, for sure. I always say, I mean, no matter what you're, you're doing, make sure you get some instruction. Yeah. You know, I'm not saying you have to come, you know, see me. Well, I'd, yeah. I'd love that, but, <laughs> you know. Yeah. There's lots of information out there. Um, you know, make sure your source is reliable that you're, you know, you're getting your, your exercises from or workouts, that type of thing, somebody reputable. And just make sure it's something that you're gonna be able to do consistently and actually progress with. Mm. Because at the end of the day, I mean, you, you never wanna do anything aimlessly without a, an end result in mind. Right, yeah, I, I agree with that. I mean, it gets important. You can do something new and a lot of, you know, if you've never exercised before, but, and you start off and you're like, wow, I'm starting off low. But then you start to improve. That's that's also a feeling of, of confidence, and and you know, uh, and people benefit from that when, especially when it's something physical, and, and that's one of the challenges they may have as they age. For sure, there has to be that reward reward there. Yeah, big time. Good. Well, thanks so much for showing us the stuff today. I think uh, that was super helpful. Yeah, thanks for having me, Mike. I appreciate it. Anytime. Awesome. Well, that was great learning from Shane Monahan from Age Right Health and Fitness. We here at the Health and Wellness Show wish him the best of luck as he launches his new business in the East End of St. John's. When we come back, I'll be finishing up my chat with Dr. Kovacs as he explains bone health and osteoporosis. Deficient calcium intake is a major cause of osteoporosis worldwide. And in Newfoundland, there's a generation that didn't grow up with dairy products, fresh dairy wasn't available, and so it's never been in their um, daily habit, and and it hasn't been replaced with anything. Anything, so they've grown up with low calcium intake. And if um, the way I explain this is that, well, 99% of the calcium in your body is in your bones. You need a certain amount each day, and if you don't have enough coming in to meet your daily needs, then you borrow it from your skeleton. And if you always don't have enough for your daily needs, then you're constantly taking from your skeleton and not putting it back. And so individuals who have low calcium intake um, are at increased risk of, of osteoporosis. Um, and in the, the osteoporosis clinic that I run, where a lot of the individuals I see are over age 60, um, they, it's, so I'll say first that the ideal calcium intake is between 1,000 to 1,200 milligrams a day, and that's pretty much any age um, as an adult. Um, so 1,000 to 1,200 milligrams a day, and we consider low calcium intake to be under 300 milligrams a day. And it's quite often that the dietitian in the clinic with me will estimate an individual's calcium intake and say that you can't even estimate it, that it's, it's something under 100 to... Hmm even being absent. So, the, so there's a lot of people who have really low calcium intake. And if somebody's got lactose intolerance, unless they're using lactate or something to be able to take dairy products, they probably have uh, deficient calcium intake too. And vitamin D intake um, tends, um, vitamin D deficiency tends to be more common in Newfoundland um, because of, well, the latitude we make 
uh, the further north you are, the less penetration of the UV light, so you can't make as much vitamin D. And then the lovely weather that we have, all the cloud cover and so on, that blocks a lot of the UV. Um, and so um, vitamin D deficiency is common from lack of sunlight exposure. And there's not a lot of vitamin D in foods naturally unless you're eating um, salmon or whale blubber exclusively. And so in order to get enough vitamin D in your diet, you need to, again, be dairy products are supplemented with vitamin D. Right. Um, so if you're avoiding dairy, you're, you're avoiding the calcium, you're avoiding the vitamin D. Um, so for a lot of people, uh, taking a supplement of vitamin D becomes necessary if they're not getting it through supplemented dairy products or from sunlight exposure. So these are, so I, I, you were asking about risk factors for Newfoundland. And so uh, low calcium intake, low vitamin D. In terms of ethnicities, Caucasians um, tend to have lower uh, bone mass compared to African-Americans, and Caucasians tend to have greater tendency towards fragility compared to Asians at the same level of bone density. So there's something in mm. the genetics there that we don't understand. So Asians, as a, as a generality, tend to have lower bone density, lower bone mass than Caucasians, and yet much lower fracture risk than Caucasians. And it's been quite remarkable at times because I've had um, patients refer to me who say grew up in Bangladesh or China or Japan and came to Canada as an adult and, and they've been seen elsewhere and told they have osteoporosis on the basis of their bone density. They've been treated and then they move here and I end up seeing them and I, and I properly do their fracture risk based on their country of origin and they go from high risk to low risk when they're right. recognized according to the database truly estimates their fracture risk. Um, so there's say so there's something in the genetics there, and, and um, it's yet another thing if we understood what's <laughs> going on, uh, what explains why an Asian's um, bone is stronger despite the lower density compared to a Caucasian's, or why is the African-American bone density tending to be greater than the Caucasian's. There, yeah. There's implications there about um, genes controlling the building up of bone mass and, and also that it's a, an inherently stronger structure. You know, go back to that analogy I mentioned of the steel girders and the bricks, um, that maybe there's something about the Asian bone structure that there's more cross-connections among those steel girders, so there may not be more girders there, but they're just designed more um, effectively to reduce bending and crushing forces. Uh, compared to the Caucasian bone structure. That's interesting. And, you know, with an aging population in Newfoundland uh, as well, and you said that was a risk factor, we've got uh, we've got a work cut out for us, and you're not going to run out of research anytime soon. Right. So. Yeah, and, and you remind me of something else, because um, overweight and obesity is more common in Newfoundland than I think any other province in Canada. And that mm -hmm. has a, a double whammy, because it, it increases the risk of diabetes, which causes bone fragility for reasons we don't really understand. Um, but also, um, it inc increases the risk of bone loss independent of diabetes. And it, for a long time, it was thought to be protective, and the thought that, well, if you're overweight, you've got more fat pads, you fall, you're gonna, you, you've got the fat over your hip to protect your hip. And that's true to a certain extent, but 
you where the the overweight or obesity would be beneficial is if, in somebody who is as an as an adolescent or a young adult when they're building their bone mass if they've got more weight carried around that could be beneficial because it could lead to um, a greater uh, uh, bone mass being achieved but mm-hmm. as an adult the the overweight and obesity just has an adverse effect somehow on uh, preserving bone strength. Um, and there's, as I say, there still is that potential benefit of the fat pads when you fall, but it's not good overall. And then it's even worse if the overweight or obesity leads to diabetes. Right. And then increases uh, fragility further. Well, and we know that obesity is associated with sometimes lack of physical activity in some cases. And so maybe it's yes. a whole whole concoction yep. of, of lack of physical things. activity and, and implications about um, uh, nutrition and so on. Hmm. Well, that is interesting stuff, uh, Dr. Kovacs. I really appreciate you walking us through that. I feel like it's a topic that a lot of people don't really understand, and I think that those are some great explanations for people to be able to, you know, think about what are the risk factors, where can they be a little bit better, and then also how can they, you know, improve their health literacy. So when they go talk to the doctor, they, they kind of know what they should be asking. So thank you very much. Yeah. Yes, if I could mention one more thing, one of the biggest problems about the condition of osteoporosis is that it's silent. And as you were just making in your remarks there, a lot of people won't appreciate that they're at risk. They'll say, I feel fine. And you don't feel anything as your bone density is declining until you have a fracture. And then it's already too late in a sense because it's the, usually the start of more fractures to come. Um, and so it is better for people to appreciate the risk factors to know when to get a screening bone density done and, and the fracture risk assessment rather than being surprised down the road that they've had a fracture and then and then it's not possible to preserve what you've got. It, it's only possible to try to repair with um, medications. Right. Fix the roof before it's raining. Exactly. <laughs> well, that's great. Well, thank you so much. I, I really appreciate it. All right. Well, thanks, Mike pleasure being on. Thank you to Dr. Kovacs for joining us today and giving us some much needed info on something that impacts so many of us as we get older. It's not very often we get a chance to learn about osteoporosis from an expert. He gave us lots of tips on how we can get the right nutrition and helped us understand our risk factors as Newfoundlanders and Labradorians. Also a big thanks to Shane Monahan for sharing his exercise advice on what we can do to keep ourselves strong as we age. Today's show is engineered by VOCM and Richard Sepka. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Wall. Stay healthy, and I'll see you next time for another episode of the Health and Wellness Show on your VOCM.